Hello, Matt Millington here. I'm the host of Invent Health. Now, if you're just joining us, you're in luck, as we have a full season of shows for you to catch up on. Invent Health is a podcast about the future of health and technology, brought to you by technology and product development company TTP. We're currently taking a short hiatus after our first season, where we covered everything from curing blindness to ending pain, from making hospitals more sustainable to putting a hospital in our home. Before we come back with season two, our friends over at the Life Sciences team here at TTP are going to be dropping their very own series in the new year. Invent Life Sciences will be a series looking at all things biology, the efficacy of animal testing, the benefits of synthetic biology, even asking what the infamous team behind Theranos actually got right in terms of diagnostics. But in the meantime, we wanted to give you some bonus content to whet your appetite for the things to come and spread a little bit of Christmas cheer. So here's the full conversation from one of our favourite interviews of this series. In early November, I spoke with Dr. Pierce Keane for our episode on eye care, looking at how the world's top doctors and scientists are working to find ways to restore sight. Pierce is a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital and a professor of artificial medical intelligence at UCL. Over his career, he's worked with Google's DeepMind to develop artificial intelligence algorithms for the early detection and treatment of retinal diseases. We spoke to him about a range of things, about his work at Moorfields, the current state of eyesight in the world today, going from code to clinic, and how he and his team are utilising AI to come up with fascinating new treatments and discoveries that could change the field as we know it. We hope you enjoy it. Can you tell me a little bit about your your day job or your your current crusade? So my name is Pierce Keaton. Um, so I wear a number of different hats. <clears throat> I am a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, and so at Moorfields I specialize in the treatment of retinal diseases. So those are um, conditions which affect the back of the eye. So things like age-related mm-hmm. macular degeneration and diabetic eye disease. So respectively, those are the, the commonest causes of blindness in the UK and in Europe and many other countries around the world. So that's the hat that I wear as a doctor, as an ophthalmologist. Um, the hat that I wear as an academic is that I'm an associate professor at University College London at UCL. Um, and at UCL, I feel very privileged that I, I lead clinical research group. And the the sort of aim of that group is, can we develop and apply artificial intelligence in healthcare using ophthalmology Mm -hmm. as an exemplar to other medical specialties in how we go about this, uh, this development? Okay, so you're you're more than qualified to ask my very general question of how is our eyesight at the moment collectively? Wow, that's uh, that's a good question. That's um, I've never been asked by that before. Um, so I would say that, um, of course, I have a I have a skewed perspective because I'm seeing only the people who are coming into Moorfields with sort of um, you know potentially severe eye disease. Yeah. Um, but but I think that one of the things that is always surprising to other doctors in other medical specialties is just how busy ophthalmology is. In fact, since 2017, ophthalmology has overtaken all other medical specialties in the NHS. Yeah. So nearly 10, nearly 10% of all clinic appointments in the NHS are for eyes. And that constitutes nearly 10 million appointments per year. And furthermore, that's, that's, a, that's a number that's been rising in recent years. 
So, so I guess in answer to your question in a, in a roundabout way, um, lots of people are having problems with their eyesight. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, I mean, to put it kind of brutally, we're, we're drowning in the number of patients that we need to see and treat with, um, with sight-threatening eye disease. Mm-hmm. So is, is our sight getting worse collectively or are we becoming more aware or is it more nuanced than that? I think it's a, it's a combination of multiple factors. Mm. So I think the biggest driver is a number of things. So, so the first, I think, massive driver is, is we just have an aging population. And, mm. and so, you know, people are getting older, they're living, you know, people are living longer, obviously. And I think people are, are, are much healthier as they, as they get older now. Mm-hmm. So I see patients in my clinic, um, a patient in their 90s who's an architect who is still kind of doing a little bit of work um, and I have patients in their in their 80s and 90s who are artists they're mm. they're just living really full and meaningful lives and I think so so I guess one of the things that I always say to people is like being being 90 now is kind of like being 80 uh, mm-hmm. you know a generation ago and I think with that you know, people are less likely to kind of be resigned to losing their sight as they're getting older. Mm. And so they they come in and they, they want to get seen and treated. And so maybe if I can embody what I've just said in some sort of cold, hard facts. Mm. But um, there was a study in the British Journal of Ophthalmology that was published just last year, which, which looked at the prevalence of age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, commonest mm. cause of blindness in the UK by far. And actually, they estimated that... Um, more than 25% of people in Europe over the age of 60 have the early or intermediate forms of macular degeneration. Mm. To me, that's a staggering number. 60 is not old. These are This is hundreds of millions of people, potentially, yeah. um, or um, huge numbers of people. So, so, of course, we're having to deal with um, the this population. I think... The, that goes hand in hand with other diseases. So in particular, we have a, a real big challenges in dealing with diabetic retinopathy, yeah. um, which is a kind of manifestation of, of diabetes affecting the eyes. And so, you know, as the, the world's populations are getting more affluent, we're increasingly having to deal with conditions such as diabetes that, um, uh, and of course that affects people's eyes. Um, and so, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that in many countries around the world, diabetic eye disease is the commonest cause of blindness in people of working age population. Right. So those, those are just two things. Maybe one other thing to finish with is to say um, we're, we're also seeing an epidemic of myopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's a massive, that's a problem in the UK, but it's a massive problem in East Asia. So you have a situation now where I think something like 80 or 90% of all all kids leaving secondary school in places like Singapore and Hong Kong are uh, coming from school uh, being short-sighted. And so all the evidence suggests that that is is probably linked to not enough spending time not not spending enough time outdoors, mm-hmm. spending too much time indoors, maybe studying, playing computer games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm-hmm. that that sort of feels like a tsunami that's coming towards yeah, East Asia in in the coming decades. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems clear that our our lifestyles are having a negative impact on, well, our health in general, um, but clearly affecting our eye health. Um, I mean, I guess that there is some good news in that it sounds like there are new ways to treat 
issues with the eyes. What are the shortcomings of traditional eye, eye care health or um, eye health care? And what are the new sort of emergent solutions that are coming? Well, I think that, um, I, I mean, as you've said, we have such amazing advances in ophthalmology. We're very, very technologically driven, very innovative specialty. Surgery such as cataract surgery, which is now the commonest surgery in all of the NHS, yeah. is done through incisions that are a couple of millimeters in size, is is done with ultrasound or with laser in some cir- circumstances, and can often be done in the, in 10 minutes, 15 mm-hmm. minutes, uh, potentially. Transformative effects. We can now treat many things like diabetic eye disease, and in particular macular degeneration, with injections into the eye. Mm-hmm. And these are uh, called intravitreal injections. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you have an injection in, into the center of the eyeball, which sounds horrific, but is, is actually relatively painless. And that can block bleeding and leakage of fluid that causes damage at the back of the eye. Mm-hmm. Now, where I'm getting to with that, though, is that there are many conditions for which we have a, a treatment that we can prevent people from going blind. Yeah. But actually, there is still a huge burden on patients. The, the problem is that you often need to come into the hospital every four weeks, every six weeks, every eight weeks to have these injections. And maybe you need to do that over the course of 10 years or more. Maybe you need to do that for the rest of your life as things stand. Yeah. You know, you often wait a couple of hours for five minute consultation with a doctor or an injection that takes one minute to do. And, you know, so that's a still a significant burden on people's lives. And so one of the things that I really believe and I'm, I feel kind of passionate about is <clears throat> the promise of new technology and the promise of innovation and the promise of artificial intelligence in particular mm-hmm. is how can we bring world leading expertise out of the hospital and maybe into the homes of patients in the future? Well, just to tie a few of those things together, you, you mentioned earlier that, um, the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure with a massive increase um, of, of referrals and people coming in. So I'm assuming that presents a, a massive burden. So mm. what is the opportunity presented by technology to to tackle that? You know, you, you, you mm. said if we can pick up um, AMD early, we can treat it. So how do we get through that many people um, mm. with the current workforce? Um, mm. And, you know, where does AI play a part in in um, sort of mm. lessening that problem? So I think um, certainly all the evidence suggests, and I think it's fairly intuitive, that earlier detection uh, equals um, earlier diagnosis equals earlier treatment equals mm-hmm. save site. Mm. Um, now, of course, the challenge that we face is the huge number of patients that we need to deal with. And I've already talked about aging population, um, diseases such as diabetes, etc., But I think the other challenge that we face is that, you know, we have new new technologies that are being employed in the community feeding into some of the referrals that we have in the hospital service. So what I mean by that is, you know, increasingly now in community optometry settings, you have very advanced imaging devices that are being deployed. In particular, you have... um, you know, advertisements from some of the major optometry chains over the last year or two, or at least pre-pandemic, uh, advertising a type of scanner called OCT. 
which stands for Optical Coherence Tomography. Essentially like an ultrasound, but it measures light waves instead of sound waves, and it gives really, really high-resolution images of the back of the eye of the retina. Mm-hmm. Now, you can when you go and have a routine eye check, it's very common that you'll be you'll be offered to have an OCT scan done as part of that check. And let me be clear, I think mm-hmm. that's amazing. Now, the problem though is that that can off that sometimes those uh, checks are being offered without a lot of expertise to interpret the scans. Right. And so any kind of deviation away from normal gets referred into the hospital. And it's usually referred urgently, like, mm-hmm. does this patient have AMD? And so to me, it's as if, um, imagine like, uh, imagine if you're GP, if every GP in the country was given their own MRI scanner yeah. and told you can scan everybody who has a headache who comes in or, you know, and, but, but then not really given, not really given the appropriate training to be able to interpret the scans and they just send mm-hmm. everybody into the NHS. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And, and so, um, as an example, then, um, in 2016, when I first started a lot of the work in AI, um, at Moorfields, we had 7,000 urgent new patient referrals as possible wet AMD, commonest cause of blindness. Mm-hmm. Now, of those 7,000 urgent referrals, 800 of those actually had this sight-threatening disease. Wow. Now... For me, then, the promise of AI, at least initially, is can we use these um, what are called deep learning systems on these devices to be able to sort of identify those patients with the most sight-threatening disease, to prioritize those patients to get in front of someone like me at the soonest possible time, and the patients who really don't have anything seriously wrong with them, that they Mm -hmm. can, it's okay for them to wait a few weeks um, Mm -hmm. or even a couple of months to be seen if it's not Mm -hmm. serious. So, I mean, it it kind of, uh, the question I, I often ask around AI, because obviously we understand what it is good for, but to many mm. AI seems like a, a bit of a silver bullet. Um, mm. Have you any? Have you seen any examples of AI being used incorrectly, um, or sort of causing more problems than than they're actually solving? Mm. Well, I think. Um, I mean, I would say. I mean, I think it's really important to emphasize um, to the listeners that, you know everybody's excited about AI and there's a lot of hype around it, but at the end of the day, it's not magic. Mm. This is, this is a tool that we know works in a certain way. And, um, if it's trained on, uh, appropriate data, it will work in a, some specific application in the future and mm-hmm. it, and it won't work in, in, in other applications. So I think that's the first thing to highlight. It's not magic. Second mm. thing to highlight is, um, we're at a stage where, you know, we've started to see the promise of um, the promise of the the promise of AI outside of healthcare. So mm-hmm. we've already we I mean, in the last decade, we've seen it in the tech industry. We've seen it in the way that we can do uh, speech recognition, um, voice assistance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we've started to see that percolate into healthcare just in the last five or six years. And where we are then is that we've published a load of papers that are, and, and I include myself in this, that are kind of proof of concept work. Mm-hmm. But we are yet to see these AI systems being deployed at scale. Mm. And that's that's a very important thing. And I think what we've been learning is that these systems have a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses. Mm-hmm. 
And we still are trying to figure out how we can make them robust, how we can make them reliable, how we can make them safe, and how we can make them fair. And I don't think we have all the answers to those questions um, mm -hmm. just yet. Mm. So, speaking of making them safe, um, and making them fair and accessible, mm. what is going to be the role of the ophthalmologist in future when they have when more of this technology is is pervasive people have more access to it i think some people see ai as um a replacement um mm. for the human mm. when actually well certainly in my own um fairly uninformed opinion there needs to be a combination of the two so how how do you see your your kind of your two day jobs um potentially in future mm. could almost be conflicting how do you think they would fit together so I think um, I have no fears that AI is going to replace me or doctors in general anytime yep. soon. Good. Now, of course, <laughs> I'm biased in making that claim and maybe I'm kind of being self-deluding in that regard. But, but I, I think, you know, some of the AI techniques that all or all, rather all of the AI techniques we're talking about, in, in particular deep learning, Mm. You know, it will work well in certain ways and it won't work well in other ways. And one of the fundamental things is that um, it works well when it's trained on large data sets. Mm. And then it, it, uh, when it's deployed, uh, where it's exposed to data that's similar to the data that it's been trained on. So if it's exposed to something that's different, then it really probably won't work well, or at least will work unpredictably. Mm. Now, one of the things that we know in medicine is that it's not a closed system. It's very, very open-ended. And, yeah. you know, I think of my role in, in a place like Moorfields, you know, a world-leading center. Our AI systems are not going to be well-placed, at least for the foreseeable future, in dealing with things that they have never seen before. Yeah. For that reason, I think that a lot of the initial use cases are going to be in things like screening like mm -hmm. screening for diabetic retinopathy or in the the use case that i just described around triaging or prioritizing patients for referral or they're going to be around monitoring patients better monitoring of patients in the community i don't think for example that we will be diagnosing patients so making the final diagnosis of a patient mm. without a human in the loop in in the coming years so i just don't i don't feel that there there's going to be a situation where someone is going to get an injection in their eyeball um without a human being in the loop due to some of the limitations of the current technology yeah i th i think i completely agree on the technology perspective there but also i think from a human perspective Mm. Uh, acceptance would you actually agree to have an injection in your eyeball because a computer said so I think you'd always want a human being in the system, um, at yeah. least, yeah. at least for a generation or two, while we, you know, we adapt to these new new digital capabilities. Well, so I think you've got it, you've got it exactly right, and I and the other thing is, um, I read a few I read a book a few years ago that I loved called Humans Are Underrated, and essentially it sort of describes how we as humans have still have like a lot of stone age kind of like impulses that we need to interact with other humans in, mm. in, in for many different things. And, and so for example, 
I just don't see it anytime soon that like um, your 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 smartphone or your your Apple Watch or whatever um, tells you that you you have a uh, you have cancer or that your laptop tells you that you're going to go blind. Mm. I think like that is something where a hu- you need a human expert who kind of has seen thousands of people like you and has has the wisdom and experience to guide you. That mm-hmm. you need that sort of person in the loop for those sorts of really Im- important things. Yeah, I mean, because the the immediate thing you want <clears throat> after a diagnosis is the well, so what? What does that mean? Mm. What do I need to do? Mm. Who should I speak mm. to? All of those things that humans do very naturally. Um, mm. So I I think yeah that 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 is music to my ears. I mean, the the human brain is is fantastic um, and better mm. at most things uh, than a computer, particularly when it comes to being creative and understanding that there are other factors that perhaps you wouldn't have programmed into um, uh, a deep learning system. So you on your daily basis will know, Hmm. well, there might be something else going on here that I just have an inkling and you would know to ask another human being. Um, so yeah. that's computers are not so good at it. I have heard on the on the flip side though that certain um, sort of new algorithms are doing things that we don't necessarily understand. I, I can't remember where I read it, but um, there was an anecdote kicking around somewhere in my head that uh, people asked uh, a number of eye doctors to identify mm. the sex of a patient mm. through a, through a photograph of the eye. Um, mm. and I think the the result was about 50, 50. Um, mm. but they put that through an algorithm and the algorithm was about 97% accurate. Mm. And yet we didn't necessarily understand why. Yeah. Um, I, I find that terrifying and exciting. Yeah. So that's a famous example. So this is, um, this is a paper um, published in Nature Biomedical Engineering in 2018 from Google Brain. Yeah. And they downloaded all of the retinal images from this large UK study called UK Biobank, this amazing mm-hmm. study that we have in the UK. And I think that they had like a new um, a new person who had started working at Google Brain who was a junior person. And they just said to her, why don't you just try and predict, um, predict sex? And... Uh, and then when they got the result, they were like, oh, my God, this is like really, um, really, um, really kind of interesting. And then they, they they started to tell people like me about it. And we were like, just like for us, it was kind of a jaw dropping result. Mm. Um, and of course, if you're maybe there are easier ways to tell if it's a man or a woman than applying deep learning to a retinal photograph. Sure. But of course, as you've as you've just alluded to, Matt. That misses the point because the point is, like, I'm, I'm, uh, I have been looking obsessively at retinal photographs for 15 years or more, and I cannot begin to tell whether it's a man or a woman from it. Mm-hmm. But the but the the model can do it beautifully, and if it can do that, what are the other bits of gold that are are kind of the gold nuggets that are buried here? where the AI system can actually kind of pick up things, pick up, how can we use it to do AI-assisted scientific discovery, essentially? Yeah. And I think that that's super exciting. Mm. The The challenge obviously comes in trying to explain what the AI, how the AI has actually done what it's done. Mm. Um, mm. Well, so we still can't, of, we can't replicate it. Yeah. So for me, AI and healthcare is always, there is always a question around trust 
an acceptance mm. of it. Um, I mean, we've seen it outside of healthcare, that kind of, that black box scenario. Um, kind mm. of, it scares people. So, so I think that, um, you know, a lot of the systems should be, there, there, are, there are use cases where the AI should be autonomous and there's use cases where it should be some sort of decision support. Mm-hmm. And then there's a separate question about uh, should the AI, should the outputs of the model be explainable or at least clinically interpretable in some way? Mm-hmm. Is it okay if, if it's a black box? Mm-hmm. And I think that the assumption is that it's not okay if it's a black box. Mm. That actually we will say, well, you know, healthcare professionals are not going to adopt it if if they can't trust it, and patients are not going to want to use it, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. And you know, the fact is that there's a lot of things that we we use in healthcare which we don't understand. Mm. So I think a classic example would be general anesthetics. Nobody understands the mechanism of action of how general anesthetics put you to sleep, but we've uh, wh- been using what? it for. <laughs> that's true it's true nobody understands it and there are other major drugs that we found like to relieve pain for example and people don't understand the mechanism of them but they work yeah and so people have been been um been prepared to to uh to use them and so similarly you know are we saying that suppose we have an ai system and we've rigorously We've rigorously proven across the whole world that this can um, can prevent blindness or detect mm. sight-threatening eye disease at the earliest possible moment, and it works, and we don't know how it works, but it works. Are we going to just like turn our backs on that and say, actually, no, we, we, we don't trust it? Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing is that Okay, well, we say, okay, you know, can we add some explainability? That would you know even be the icing on the cake. But one of the challenges is that a lot of the methods that are used to provide explainability could actually lead to a reduction in performance of the model. And so, you know, suppose you're, I mean, if you were a patient and you were told that this is is 99% certain to be able to detect your cancer or 95% accurate, but actually it's not a black box. We can see what it's thinking. Yeah. You know, which would you want? Yeah. I, I think that's a really smart way of looking at it. Um, for me, it, it, it slightly smacks, and I, d- I don't know whether this is because we're calling it AI, um, mm. but there is an assumption that it is an, it is intelligent, and it is, mm. you know, some people think there mm. might be a replacement, but actually it, it's a tool that human beings have created. So there are loads of tools we've, we use, and we don't necessarily need to know how they work. Yeah. We, need, we just need to know what to do with them. Um, and it yeah. seems like the same thing is happening here, which I, I really like that perspective. I think the history of new technologies is that very quickly we forget, um, you, know, that the, the, you know, whatever they're doing. And, you know, I think... Like I, 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 you know, I pick up. I could pick up my smartphone. We, we sort of have come to take for granted that we can access all of the world's information through the internet <laughs> on our smartphones. Yep. And I think that's a similar, similar way. We, when we have these AI tools in healthcare, these will just be tools that we will use. You know, we won't view them as some kind of like magical higher power or anything like that. So we've talked about the the potential and 
not necessarily the potential. A lot of this is actually demonstrated and real. What what are the blockers? Um, what are the difficulties for actually getting this technology um, into the right eyeballs, as it were? Mm. So I think that um, I think that. So first of all, you've got to, if if we think about the whole pathway with this, mm-hmm. it turns out that. Um, to go from an idea to an algorithm and then from code to clinic, mm. there's a vast spectrum of activity that's required. Yeah. And, and actually, the, the training of a neural network, of a deep learning network, is only one sliver of this very big pathway. Yeah. And so in the first half of the pathway, it's, okay, can you identify a novel use case um, you know, where this technology will be helpful in healthcare? Where can you get the data? Because, of course, all of these systems are they're, they're machine learning systems. They depend on, on high quality data. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to be able to technically aggregate and curate the data. And, of course, that's very challenging because appropriately this is, you know, this is data taken from patients. And so aside from the technical challenges of getting the data, you have to make sure that you're, uh, you have the right ethical approvals, that you have the right information governance, data protection, that you have the right patient and public involvement, that you're transparent about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All of these things, just to get the data in the right state. Mm-hmm. So then you work with your um, you know, computer scientists or your engineers, you know, um, your AI experts to train a model on the data. And you think, okay, great. Now we publish an article in Nature or a big journal or something like that and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, get featured on the BBC News or something like that. But actually, it turns out that's only the start. Yeah. Because then you need to think about, okay, you, you've you've kind of like, you've done a proof of concept, but actually there's a major hurdles that you need to get through. So, for example, one is the technical maturity of the system. So like usually when you're for a research paper, you're just going to be using a piece of experimental code to prove the concept. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the analogy I would use is that that's a bit like um, you build a prototype car to break the world land speed record and you break the record in a one off attempt with like 20 engineers or 20 computer scientists already mm-hmm. to like tweak it to make make it happen. But actually what you need to do is you want to make that into a production car that can be um, reliable and safe and at a, a, you know, a good cost for millions of people all around the world. If we've developed an algorithm on you know, a white Irish person's eyes in Moorfields in London, for example, will that algorithm work just as well on a patient with diabetes from Ghana or Brazil mm-hmm. or Mexico or the US or different countries around the world? Mm. Will that work as well in men as in women? Will it work as well in different groups, etc.? Is it safe? Is it fair? And all of those things. And so actually, you have to prove that. You have to do kind of increasing clinical trials to validate the algorithm to make sure it's safe. Mm. So that's the, there's the clinical validation. But then suppose you've done your clinical trial. You need to be able to get regulatory approval. I remember... Um, seeing a colleague who was involved in a company that got FDA approval for their AI system. 
and they 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 had a photograph they had like a selfie i think of like a stack of paperwork like 6000 pages high of mm-hmm. all the information they had to provide just so that they could get their approval so you get your regulatory approval then you need to f- figure out who's going to pay for it mm-hmm. you know in the uk is is nice going to approve it in the US, are, are Medicare and Medicaid going to approve it or are private insurers going to pay for it? And at what level does it make economic sense for this to be used? The next question is, will doctors and healthcare professionals use it? Yeah, Maybe maybe the doctors will be like, I'm, I'm fine with my 100-year-old stethoscope. I don't want an AI-enhanced stethoscope. Mm-hmm. And that could be a barrier. So I guess what I'm trying to convey is that it's a multi-year process. Mm. And I think, you know, we've, we're in the early stages of at the moment, so we're still figuring it out as we go along. So for the benef- with the benefit of um, this just being hypothetical and audio, we have got uh, an OCT scanner uh, that is able to push data up into the cloud or wherever, um, mm. and we've got algorithms passing that data. Um, what kind of stuff can we do? What kind of uh, issues can we look for? Because I've heard somebody recently said that actually when we're, when we're looking at the eye, we're not just looking at eye health. Um, mm. We're potentially looking at the eye as a window. Sounds very poematic, mm. but a, a window into, into the rest of the, the health of the rest of your body. Mm. Um, what what would we be able to do with with these kind of um, uh, technologies when it comes to overall healthcare using the eye? Well, I think that you've put your finger on one of the the hottest topics in in the field. So this is an area we we um, one of my colleagues, Alistair Denniston, coined an entirely new term to describe it. We call it oculomics. And Ooh. it's kind of using the eye as a window to the rest of the body, as a, yeah. as a window to systemic health. And mm. in fact, that paper that we talked about earlier from uh, in Nature Biomedical Engineering from Google Brain, that was also able to tell whether the person smoked or not from the retinal photograph. It was also oh. able to, to t- tell their blood pressure. You know, one of my uh, member of uh, our research group, a guy called Siegfried Wagner, is working with me to lead a study called the Alts Eye Study. Mm. Uh, for, stands for Alzheimer's Eye. And one of the things we've done is we have linked all of the retinal images at Moorfields with something called the NHS Digital Hospital Episode Statistic Database. Mm-hmm. So we know every every person who's had eye scanning done at Moorfields who has gone on to develop Alzheimer's or uh, had a heart attack or a range of other neurological and uh, cardiovascular conditions. Mm. Now, where we're going with that is... You know, can we predict people who might have a, st- a stroke five years ahead of time and wow. then therefore do something about it? And so, you know, you may say, well, you know, there are easier ways to tell if someone smokes or, you know, you know, you don't need AI to measure someone's blood pressure. Um, but I think the promise of this, actually, a lot of people don't go to their GPs for their mm-hmm. kind of uh, regular checks. You know, there's something called the NHS um 
cardiovascular check that gets offered to people over the age of 40. And in fact, the percentage of people who take it up is still relatively small. Mm -hmm. But actually, the number of people who go to have their glasses checked once every couple of years or something like that um, is much higher. Mm -hmm. So maybe the promise is, you know, you go to your optician and uh, you have your eye check and it says, oh, you know, Pierce, you, you better check your cholesterol. You know, mm -hmm. I think that might be worth looking into. Well, I, I don't like the term, but that, that is game-changing stuff that, that opens mm. up. Yeah, I'm mm. speechless and grinning. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super cool. But I certainly feel like there's exciting stuff coming in the next few years. Brilliant. So, I mean, the, the power of these um, OCT scans, um, when connected with uh, artificial intelligence um, algorithms, seems very exciting. Obviously, there is a problem when it comes to scaling this because you have to get somebody in front of an OCT machine. Mm. Um, and just thinking of the pandemic, uh, healthcare seems to be moving moving back into mm. the home, or at least the, there seems to be a trend mm. of that. Are there any opportunities for using the very powerful imaging device I've got in my hand right now um, to actually yeah. make some of this more accessible to your your kind of your everyday user rather than having to go into a clinical setting? I think um, in the context of the pandemic, you know, at Moorfields and in eye clinics around the UK and around the world, you know, in ophthalmology, we faced huge challenges. And so one of the things that we did in Moorfields back in the very first wave of the pandemic, when we were having to kind of, you know, try and when people were coming in, we're trying to move them through the clinic very quickly. So they're not sitting beside each other in the waiting room and all of those things mm. was that that we actually started to, to use smartphones to measure visual function. So rather than having patients come in and spend a lot of time reading the eye chart in the eye clinic, mm. we actually, for people who had smartphones, we, we actually were able to explore the use of two different um, apps that had been developed uh, by two different companies. And essentially... Um, we, you know, any patient who was interested could download this app onto their phone and then they were able to assess their own visual function on the phone. And then that was able to interact with the patient portal that we had set up. So we were able to keep track of their visual function. And so that saved time for the patients when they're coming into the clinic. Um, but also for the patients with non-urgent disease, where we had said to them, look, we're going to cancel your appointment. We're going to see you like it. We're going to push it back six months because we don't think it's urgent. What mm. we'd like you to do is regularly check your vision on your smartphone. And if your vision starts to, to change, to deteriorate in any way, then basically mm. an alert will be sent and we'll be able to kind of bring you back into the system. Mm. So the pandemic had was an opportunity for us to begin to test that. Now, that's just measuring the visual function. There are, in fact, a number of OCT scanners for use in the home. Wow. Um, and, and so, um, you know, those are already commercially available in, in, in uh, some countries. I think um, it remains to be seen how many patients will want to use such a device uh, like that in the home. And, you know, mm. um, because the devices that are available at the moment are still rather largest, largest devices that need to, to, to be um, bought and they're somewhat expensive. But there's a lot of research in photonics at the moment, something called photonics in a chip. And the idea would be that maybe in the future you, can, you could take these 
quality of scans, these type of scans using smartphone. Mm. And I think that's when the potential gets really exciting because if you can kind of just have these scans done without having to think about it, without having to change your day-to-day routine or inconvenience yourself, then Mm. we get to a, a really powerful state. Yeah. I love that idea of um, the screen being part of the problem, but also potentially you can embed the Mm. solution in it as well. If we were to look um, sort of 10 or 15 years into the Mm. future, maybe at this day and age, that's almost impossible, but maybe five to 10 Mm. years into the future, where do you see ophthalmology uh, and technology going to? Well, I would see, maybe I can... I sort of see two broad sort of trends, I would say. Um, This decade, the 2020s, is the decade where we're finally going to figure out how to bring clinical data together for the benefit of our patients. You know, clinical data is still too siloed in many different kind of locations. And essentially, you know, if I have a patient who comes to me... um, you know, suppose they've been seen in an eye hospital in a different part of London or in a different part of the UK, yeah. and they come to me. In almost every case, I don't have access to the data for mm-hmm. their direct patient care. And it would take me a lot of time and effort to be able to make a request for their OCT scans from a different hospital, for example. Yeah. So the data is siloed, and that affects both direct patient care and, uh, just as importantly, research. Now, one of the broad trends I see is that we can use privacy-protecting machine learning technologies. There's things called federated learning. There's things called differential privacy. That essentially means that we can, you can train an AI model on data from, you know, 100 hospitals all around the world uh, without the data ever having to leave those hospitals. Mm. And so... Uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of imagine a situation where we look. You know, I look back in 2030, and um, you know, I'm, when I'm talking to medical students, I'm kind of like this old fogey who talks about like when I was a medical student, um, we used to do studies with like the biggest study of of diabetic eye disease was 300 patients, and then in 2030, it's like uh, studies on every single patient with diabetic eye disease in the world. Yeah. and and massive breakthroughs and i'll be like someone who's talking about silent movies or black and white <laughs> movies or like or or stuff like that yeah so for the the way i see things for the for the the ophthalmologist of 2030 or the or, or healthcare in 2030 is that when when we see patients those patients will be in front of us or maybe you know being seen virtually We'll have a staggering amount of data about the patients. We could have five different types of imaging. We might have, um, you know, different visual function tests, visual, you know, visual field tests, MRI scans, CT scans. We'll have their genomic information. We'll have their proteomic information, their metabolomic information. We'll have information from their their um, Fitbit or you know a smartwatch, which tells them how tells us how much exercising the ex- exercise they've been doing. Um, we'll have their home OCT uh, outputs, and then I think what we'll have then is a range of AI tools or a toolkit, 
And we'll have something that allows us to kind of like synthesize the imaging data, bring together the imaging data, and mm. gives us some kind of, you know, actionable bit of intelligence about the imaging data. And we'll have something about their omic data and something about their environmental data. We won't have artificial general intelligence, which can bring all of that together, but we will be still the human in the loop. Mm. I, I think that is exciting um, in that technology will enable us to access the care part of the word healthcare. I think that's really fascinating. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Matt. That's all for today. Thanks so much again to Pierce Keen and to you for tuning back into Invent Health from TTP. We hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and would like to wish you a happy new year. We hope you'll join us again soon for some more Invent Health. <laughs>